This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you for spending 30 minutes listening to our podcast, the Retail Politics Podcast, where we today we will do a special edition for Passover with a special guest, Rabbi Joshua Uter, considered the, one of the world's top Jewish influencers, joining us today from Jerusalem. Hello, Rabbi. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. This is kind of nice. You're you're allowing us to go international. You're a first guest from outside the U.S., so we wow. appreciate you being that generous, generous with your time. So let's get into it. Our worldwide 18 million religious and what I would call ethnic Jews, uh, someone who has a, a Jewish parent or, or someone in their family, one in three living here in the United States. What is different about this Passover uh, holiday this year? So it's going to be really interesting, I think, because the the obvious answer that people may come up with is Corona, but we've kind of did that last year. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit unclear yet. We still have, you know, at least sometime I know Passover is coming up really, really fast, faster than anyone wants to admit. But it's hard to, it's going to be hard to predict what the corona situation is going to be like. So it's possible that it's going to be a repeat of what people were doing last year, or it's possible that maybe people will be able to meet up with family again in a way that they weren't able to the previous year. So I'd say, you know, it's either going to be a case where, you know, it's, we have some practice, we've done this before, so we'll do it again. Yes, it's terrible and we're kind of used to it. Or maybe it could be, hopefully, one of those first steps back to life as normal or whatever the new normal is going to be. So it, that's going to be very interesting. Um, I wish I could predict it. I can't. A lot of that's going to depend on where people happen to live and who knows what else that goes on. Right. So the world, worldwide pandemic, how has it affected uh, practicing Jews? Uh, in many, many ways. I can't speak for uh, other denominations. I'm more affiliated with the uh, Orthodox community. Uh, you have uh, the Rabbinical Council of America, an Orthodox rabbinical group, put a, a distinct section on their website dealing with a whole bunch of corona-related questions on pretty much any topic you could think of that people encountered. So you have that where people are looking for ways of how do we keep Jewish law while also trying to maintain responsible uh, boundaries and health precautions. I think one of the bigger challenges that's going to be interesting is going to see what happens after Corona, you know, hopefully leaves us pretty soon. What's going to happen with uh, synagogues and Jewish organizations on that level and to see where all of that shakes out? Because I know some Jewish organizations, you either downsized or le uh, left office space, may shift how they operate. And synagogues, you, you've got certain communities where, you know, the regular attendance was kind of shut down completely, or they'll have just smaller things, and to get back into a synagogue-centered type of religious atmosphere. So that's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen, but Corona, at least in the Orthodox Jewish community, has affected in so many different ways, and people trying to be as accommodating as possible within the boundaries of what 
they believe Jewish law to be. And remember, um, last year in Israel, Corona started just around Purim time. And we're already thinking about, well, how many people are we allowed to have over at our meals? Um, and if your observance is very much tied to family and community, and now all of a sudden you can't have that, that can have a really big effect on, if not your ritual practice, then how you experience the ritual. It's very interesting. I have a very dear friend here in Florida, and uh, she was very upset with coronavirus because she just looked forward so much to going to synagogue on Saturday morning and seeing her fellow uh, fellow people there. And, um, you know, and she, she was just really upset until she figured out that by going online, she could watch rabbis from New York and Chicago. I think she's got a crush on a rabbi in New York. I'm just saying. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she could go and do that. And she loves it. She she loves it. I think she does miss Temple. I, I think she, you know, that was a, a very important practice to her. But are a lot of people doing that? Or are they Are they taking advantage of this to see different, you know, rabbis and different, you know, um, organizations? So I think that's definitely happened in the Orthodox community where uh, we would not be using the computer on Shabbat or festivals. People would not zoom in to say Shabbat services. However, I do know that many more prominent rabbis have been doing Zoom classes or various things on the internet that they otherwise might not have. And that I think has broken down a lot of uh, the barriers of you know, just exposure uh, because you could have these rabbis who, you know, not just don't do Zoom, but aren't on the internet and aren't really mm -hmm. part of any of these conversations. So if sure. you don't live in that area, you'd never be exposed to it. Sure. So I do think there, there a lot of that has been broken down and people have been exposed to a lot more rabbis and a lot more ideas um, and even just people and having conversations that they otherwise might not have had, uh, even if it may not have been specifically for, uh, you know, services. And then in terms of affecting the synagogues when this is over, is there a worry that there may some be some decline in attendance after the pandemic lifts because people have found other ways to practice? I'm sure there, pro there is or could be. Um, again, I don't know. I can't speak for um, the non-Orthodox denominations. I know within uh, certain Orthodox communities, uh, there is there's a certain attraction to not having to go through a synagogue, but rather having your small little minion or your small service in your backyard. Uh, used to have shtibles all over the place where people did just that. So for people who may not like their uh, main synagogue in their neighborhood, but managed to come up with their own alternative out of necessity, not that they would have ever done it by themselves, it can be really hard to go back. On the other hand, it's theoretically possible uh, that people would realize, hey, this is what we missed. Um, and it could be that for many people, synagogue was something that just people took for granted. It's something that you went to and you did it out of habit and became more Very of a drag. And now yeah. you realize, hey, there was a lot of great stuff that I mm -hmm. missed, even mm -hmm. just the social camaraderie. It's possible you know, you're going to find, if not the same people coming back, it may be attractive to people who might not have gone to synagogue in ages or might not have gone on a regular basis, who now really appreciate the value after it's no longer an option. Kind of that, again, you don't know what you got till it's gone mentality.
that that's a great that's a great point of view because I think there will be a lot of say, hey, we we appreciate this and and they appreciate a lot more. We talk about politics on the show, and you are you really don't get into politics too much and and commenting on the state of Israel and those things. And you say you you have a concern about the kind of the mix of politics and religion. Tell me a little bit about that. When it comes to big political policies. Um, I'm a huge fan of expertise, or at least of people trying to think things through. I do think, uh, and this is something that has been bothered me both from the left and the right politically, of when religion and politics get confused and overlap such that it's hard to tell the difference between the two. I find that uh, when religion and politics are too intertwined, they have a corrupting influence on each other. One way would be if uh, someone is really affiliated with a political party and is very devoted like with that allegiance and that alliance and is also a very religious person, it doesn't take that much for someone to sort of reinterpret the religion in light of the party line. Um, and the other way I think can cause problems as well, that once you're dealing in the area of politics, you're dealing with a matter of coercion, uh, using the power of the state to tell people, here's what you have to do, here's what you can't do. And when people you know, get too much power like that in the field of religion, it's also very easy to corrupt that as well. Or what you think is might be a certain religious ideal may not work for everyone under your jurisdiction that you're now forcing people to follow. Uh, not to mention, you may start making your own religious compromises in order to maintain your power, it, thinking that what you're doing is not only correct policy, but also the real fulfillment of God's will. So when these things get combined, I find it corrupts both because at some point, you know, you're either worshiping politics and just calling it religion and you're know, changing things accordingly, or you wind up messing up with politics because they're just very, you know, I, I think there are different uh, concerns involved. So even with Judaism, there's a lot within Jewish law that we may say is political, that deals with uh, social governance. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea to impose all of this on a state level. That's a, that's a sensible, uh, that's a very good sensible kind of delineation of, of the two. That, that That's very interesting. One of the things I was always fascinated with, with the Jewish faith was its relationship to the military stories. I mean, some of the holidays, Hanukkah, you know, the defeat of the Greeks uh, to, you know, reclaim the temple, Passover, the delivery of the Hebrews uh, from Egyptian slavery. And it seems to me that they've just been fighting in that area since the Bible time thousands of years ago, and it still seems to be raging today in that region. Why do you think that is? From what I remember from my ancient history, you know, you're talking about a, a really juncture point between uh, you know uh, Asia and Africa. So you had a lot of people going through it. So it was a pretty valuable piece of land. Uh, I could also say, you know, what point of the world have people not been fighting uh, even today? Uh, we can ask like why certain things are more magnified than others. Um, but to my knowledge, fighting's you know pretty much a worldwide thing. It just you know sticks out a little bit more and. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, called, you know, even the axial region, you know, been here for a long time, which means we've just been fighting uh, a little bit longer 
Uh, your observation, though, reminds me of a joke people would say about summarizing Jewish holidays and fast days. Is Jewish fast days would be, you know, they tried to kill us, they succeeded, we don't eat. The holidays are, they tried to kill us, we succeeded, let's eat. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. So That's yeah, awesome. there is you know there is a lot of that there, and yeah, there there is quite a bit that uh, are uh, military victories. Uh, others uh, holidays were more based on the agrarian uh, you know calendar things associated with that. So it's not all about. <laughs> Uh, military victories, Bo, that's definitely there. Yeah, you make a great point because, you know, we had the Crusades and, uh, you know, 200 years ago, the Christians are fighting the Muslims and, you know, um, it just seems, um, you know, when I look at that, that, you know, we're killing each other for centuries over whose God's better, which seems, you know, just absurd to me. Can you speak to that a little bit? So, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people may kill someone, um, you know, for whatever reason and thinking they're justified. Um, and I think that's really the underlying thing where, you know, we've gone to war, you know, by we like the US, you know, people will go to war over things like, you know, violations of human rights, mm -hmm. which is also a form of ideology where people mm -hmm. will go out and kill people because they're fighting for a cause that they think is correct. Now, yes, obviously the details will matter over, you know, basis on, you know, what God and says and all that. And yeah, in this case, you know, who's God is better just based on their ideology. But I think it all comes from the same place of your you know, people will justify, excuse me, killing if they happen to be able to in some way. And, you know, even with political philosophy, there's huge discussions over what's a just war and what's an unjust war, um, even with God not entering into the conversation. So I, I think the real difference there is, you know, with God, it's more of a direct line in terms of ethics where say, well, my God tells me to do this, so I'm going to do that. You have, I think, something similar in the secular realm as well, only there are many, many, many more steps before you get to, oh, and this is why it's justifiable for us to go to war and kill someone else. And it's kind of interesting because I hear people talking and interpreting about the Bible and they'll say, well, David, you know, prayed to God to smite you know, the enemy and, and it just, that, that, that kind of, um, kind of, you know, makes me think like, wow, this is, uh, this is, um, God's in this, God's in this war, you know. A large chunk of Psalms is, you know, someone's praying for God to intervene and vanquish their enemies, you know, and, and I think that's an underappreciated part of Psalms that people think it's just praising us like, well, yeah, that's there, but you're also praying for God to smite the people who are against you. And uh, one of the things that, um, you know, we talk about, I, I think as beasts, humans uh, are considered the rational uh, beasts on the earth. We have the power to reason and think, but God, we do such horrible things to each other. And I think about the persecution that has gone on in the world, whether you're talking about black slavery here in America or the British oppression of the Irish in Ireland for centuries. Um, it's, it seems, and I think most people recognize the Jewish people as probably the most persecuted people in human history. I mean, we have the Holocaust, which is considered probably the most hard slaughter of humans in, in world history. Where does anti-Semitism stand today in 2021, both here in the United States and worldwide, in your view? It's a bit hard to say. I think that it's something like an ideology is very hard to stamp out completely. Uh, at best, what you can try to do is marginalize it from 
popular society, but then it still doesn't go away. It just goes off to the side and then can fester and grow. I think media, you know, social media in particular, can amplify uh, certain anti-Semitic messages in ways that they couldn't before, just in terms of speed. Uh, I think for me, at least what I'm observing mostly in the United States is I think one of the greatest challenges to combating anti-Semitism today is the politicization of anti-Semitism from what I'm seeing, where due to partisan affiliations, people will have different, people will use uh, anti-Semitism or defined it differently based on who's saying it and if uh, they're politically affiliated uh, or somehow otherwise aligned, where certain people, they'll give more favorable reads, other people, they'll give less favorable reads. And I think then it becomes incredibly difficult to have serious conversations about it when we're still arguing over what counts and what doesn't count. Uh, mm-hmm. Even just this past week, um, there was a discussion about the international uh, definition of anti-Semitism that the uh, reform movement in Judaism came out against, uh, or at least came out against making it lie. Don't uh, I'd have to check the actual statement um, because with international, it gets more complicated in terms of uh, um, actually making having it the force of law enforceable by the state. Um, but there again, you have a major disagreement now over how are you supposed to handle this and what counts and what's in and what's not. And when you have people who are not only uh, debating itself over, well, does this count or would that count? It's very hard to have a concerted effort to say we're going to stamp it out no matter where we see it when we clearly excuse it when it comes from the right sort of people or it's Mm -hmm. anti-Semitism directed against the right type of Jew for the Mm -hmm. right type of reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, So unfortunately, I think, you know, and I've seen this more in the past couple of years, uh, it's due to the internal dialogue within the broader global Jewish community, uh, I think it's just a lot harder to really address anti-Semitism because people are more interested in using it as a cudgel against political enemies than they are in saying, here's the standard that we're going to use. We're going to go, not only are we going to apply this across the board, we're going to use the same language and apply the same standard to everyone. And when other people see Jews doing this and playing by different rules, it makes it much harder for them to take it more seriously than Jews will do it themselves. So when we, we think about that persecution, is it why why the Jews? Why, is it the fact that they've been a people that have been around the longest? Why do you feel that Jews are persecuted more so in the world than, than other groups? Uh, that's hard to say. I mean, when you say also around the world, I'm not sure if that necessarily, I don't, I, I don't know how you would even quantify that. You know, it would depend on where you are. Um, mm-hmm. You know, people have written about it being the uh, oldest uh, hatred. Some trace it back to uh, the Jewish concept of chosenness or one thing or the other, the fact there are other ways of being outsiders uh, within various nations. Um, it's it's hard to answer because I don't think it's always rational, and it's hard to give a rational reason to something that's just irrational. Uh, and you could say that's that about great. lots yeah. of other yes, types of hate exactly. too. Like, why do people uh-huh. you know still hate uh-huh. black people? Exactly. Oh, so come up with a reason for it. But even that, I think, misses the point about how 
in most cases, it's, you know, just irrational or just, you know, being different. And then does it matter if you're, you know, Jewish, if you were another type of different might have the same effect as well. What does religion, how does religion play into that? Is, is it a factor that you're there, you know, Jews are a different religion than some of the others? Uh, is, is that a factor in it, do you think? I think that's definitely a factor in religious-based states, meaning if mm-hmm. you have a state where your ethical system is based on a religion, then there would be some rules for a difference between an insider of the religion and an outsider of the religion. Right. In right. that case, I don't know if Jews would necessarily be unique there. Um, mm. And in another place, you know, it's, I, I think it really would have to depend on what you're facing and in which region and what people's experiences have been. If you have someone whose only experience with Jews were incredibly negative, mm. well, it wouldn't, I mean, we could argue whether or not one should, but then it's a little bit more reasonable about why one might uh, right. extrapolate and say, well, here's was my only dealing with Jews. Here's how I was treated. And, right. you know, since I only met five of them and they all met this pattern, well, all Jews right. must be this way. Exactly. And it happens uh, also with black Americans. I mean, I'm, if, yeah, if I, you grew no up doubt. in a, near a bad neighborhood or and whether it was a white neighborhood and you had a bad experience, then that's going to register with you that and, and absurdly that all people are like this. But what in your mind can be done to reduce anti-Semitism? Uh, what, what do you think needs to happen? That's a very tricky question because you're asking about how do you eradicate an idea? And I don't really know of a good strategy on a global level for that. Uh, mostly because again, you know, there are just so many people who are going to pop up and go in very different directions. The way that I found it most effective to influence people has been to cultivate relationships. Uh, mm-hmm. Whereas if I have a relationship with someone and they see me as a person, I'm not going to change their mind about everything, but I may be able to change their mind about one or two things. Uh, I have a friend of mine in Jerusalem who uh, was uh, contacted once by a uh, I think the daughter of uh, the head of the Westboro Baptist Church, and Mm -hmm. he engaged her in an actual conversation and got her to change her way of thinking. That's not always going to work, and it's incredibly tiring and taxing, and it's really one person at a time. But as difficult as that is, the way I see it is that I think that is the most effective way of reaching out to people and really talking, because if you handle it as a you know giant thing, yeah, you may be able to push some ideas to the side, but it would be like sweeping it under the rug where it doesn't really mm-hmm. go anywhere. You just don't see it mm-hmm. as much. And yes, that could be better, like to have it marginalized than have it take on a role of prominence, but you're not really solving the problem. You're just waiting for it to bubble up again at some later point. Um, so really on a person by person basis, it's hard, it's long, but I'm not sure if there's a better way of doing it in the long run. So that's very fascinating because it reminds me of a story of Mother Teresa. So as you know, she went out and helped the poor and, you know, the other nuns in the convent, you're not supposed to go out there. You're not supposed to do that. And they got jealous of her because she was getting the attention. And one of them had come up to her in the chapel and kind of snidely said, uh, well, how do you think you're going to feed all the people in India? And she said, well, if you can't feed a hundred, just feed one. And that, that's kind of what you're saying here is like, hey, you're not going to be able to go out and conquer this hatred. But individually, you know, we can start and hopefully like a, you know, kind of a drop in a 
pond, it ripples, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and for Judaism and the Jewish people, what would you like to see? What would you like to see going forward? What I'd really like to see is more thoughtful engagement with Judaism in terms of really thinking about the not just the big questions, but how do we go about answering the big questions? Um, meaning when we think about what Judaism is and how Judaism operates, there are dozens of different systems out there. And it's incredibly, <clears throat> excuse me, incredibly easy for people to just pick and choose different sources or different things that they like and create this kind of patchwork mosaic of, you know, here's what Judaism may mean to me. Um, and then people would just speak, you know, with great authority about, well, this is Judaism because I've got this source that says that. And I would like people to take the whole enterprise a lot more seriously in terms of thinking, here's what I do, why, you know, here's why I do what I do. Here's my structure of authority. Here's how I go about answering questions and here's why. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to always be the same. But if people are constantly thinking about these things and not just looking for confirmation bias and someone telling them, you know, looking for the stuff that they want to hear anyway, because the corpus of religious texts in Judaism are massive. It's a relatively trivial exercise to find one prominent source at one period of time who says exactly mm -hmm. what you want. Mm -hmm. um, so, but people to think more about these questions, who they listen to, why do they listen to them? And really just to keep, you know, learning, uh, not even you know, just even to have that sense of engagement of trying to figure out these big questions and be more thoughtful, not just about why they do what they do, which is certainly important, important, but how do they go about even just answering those questions and handling them to begin with on a more meta level systematically? And how about the future of Judaism? I, I'm not sure. Are the young people following the older people in the orthodox community it's it, it's hard for me to say i'm a terrible prognosticator people have been trying to make predictions and right. it's hard to see what is what uh, what isn't in the orthodox community it's hard to see about a real retention rate um some mm -hmm. places have more than others i know in america there's a huge challenge financially of education yeshiva tuitions are incredibly high um, and I know that's, uh, you know, th that's really a problem for a lot of families who want to give their kids at least the same sort of religious instruction that they had and that level of uh, textual literacy that they grew up with. Uh, but that's becoming more and more difficult to be able to afford. So either people start creating new communities elsewhere, which is by no means easy, or they try to work on subways of compromise or i know several people have moved to israel where you know not everything is that great financially but the uh educational uh system is a little bit different so it's uh it, it's a hard challenge i know that it is being maintained and there are people who are coming along and you do have people in you know the next younger generation who are still observant and still very active um as far as how it's all going to turn out really hard to say. I, I've never been good with these sorts of predictions. Um, and because uh, it's, it's, I've also noticed it's not just Judaism as a whole, there are pockets in communities that develop very differently. So, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if one community develops one way and grows and becomes very vibrant, whereas another community that today may be very vibrant could you know fade away or contract within a generation or two just because of whatever 
outside dynamics happen to be going on. Well, you know, you've been around for centuries, so I'm betting on you. I mean, that's that's. that's, that's what I'll, I'll do what do. I can personally. <laughs> <laughs> but how about we talked a little bit about social media? How is social media affecting the younger Jewish people in in terms of practicing? So. From when I started um, on social media, really, it was you know much earlier. I think the conversations were a lot more—I uh, would say—a lot more serious. Uh, but you had people who had questions, and people would go and seek out and find answers. Uh, and people still do that today. Um, something that I notice, at least on Twitter, that's a lot more common um, is you have a lot of people that make very definitive grand proclamations in the name of Judaism, whether or not they're authorities on it. And people just mm-hmm. like, you know, retweet here's, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, this person mm-hmm. says something I like. Um, and that unfortunately can create a lot of, you know, uh, misinformation. Um, and, you know, there's... I, I'm. You have some very loud voices on the internet mm-hmm. that get mm-hmm. a lot of attention, whether or not they say anything intelligible, whether or not it's correct, uh, mm-hmm. because you don't need to be that knowledgeable. You just need to be more knowledgeable than anyone else, uh, right. because the random person isn't going to be able to cite a whole bunch of sources. And once you know someone tries to respond, well, how can you say that? Because you're 20 sources that say otherwise. Well, you're already too late. Uh, no yeah. one wants you know to be bothered to look things up. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of people out there who aren't loud, who do appreciate like a sane, rational voice that can develop certain ideas. Um, and I think that's definitely there too, even and it's harder to notice because they're more of what I think or hope to be a silent majority that often get drowned out by the very loud people who may not necessarily know what they're talking about, or even if they do know what they're talking about, may not necessarily be all that honest or may have their own agendas and biases and portray a Judaism that reflects their biases, ignoring everything else that contradicts it. Yeah, kind of using it as their own tool. You know, and then to get to getting kind of what they want. And I think what you talk about is the same thing we're having trouble in terms of news. You know, it's the old fake news thing. Nobody's reading. They just send it along. And I just don't know what it is. You, you mentioned the loud people. I don't know what it is about America. We love loud, obnoxious people <laughs> yelling at us. I just don't know what that is. But well, people like the attention and they want to be part of it. And, you know, if you get a lot of feedback, then all of a sudden you become that voice of authority and you know, it's a very intoxicating, you know, type of uh, type of life uh, online. Um, someone even um, described the internet, early social media, as a slot machine, where every time you get a like or a retweet, it's like you're hitting the jackpot. So you're going to say whatever you want to get as much exposure. And that's what keeps us constantly checking our feet, checking our feet to say, oh, this person responded, that person responded. So that's great. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, awesome. unfortunately, integrity suffers. And I think you're absolutely right when it comes to news. Unfortunately, you, know, you have professional journalists who play this game. Um, you know, and depending on where you are, you'll have like more watchdogs saying like, okay, here's what you reported. This is utter trash, right? Right. Um, With the rabbinate, one of the reasons why I think it's a little bit harder is the better people out there who like know, you know, tons of stuff way, 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 way more than I do are too busy to be on social media. And, you know, they're they're out like doing other things and like actually producing stuff that no one else is, you know, is going to read. And, you know, that's also a really hard thing to, you know, to combat when you've got so many people amplifying so much misinformation 
you know, and everyone thinks that they're correct because, you know, someone, hap- you know, has a title. Uh, and this is something I wrote about a, a while ago where even with a title rabbi, there is no uniform standard at all. Um, right. You know, it's not regulated. So just because two people may have the same title, you can right. have vast, vast difference in terms of knowledge, in terms of competency, or even in terms of intellectual humility to know what statements can you make, what statements can you not make. Uh, right. But to the random person, they don't know. They just see title, credentials, fantastic. I'm going to run with this. <laughs> well, and, and it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of times, and and maybe it's in the same vein, is that if you do answer this stuff, you're given some legitimacy to it. You know, whereas if you ignore it, you hope it goes away. But you're saying the same thing that the news literacy people say, which is check your sources, research your information. And you, you're saying the same thing, right? In a, in a large extent, yes. Um, the problem is that you know, a lot of people who are following this just, one, can't because not everyone can read Hebrew or read the sources in the original. Uh, and then it becomes a question of authority. Who are the people that you ask or treat as authoritative? And you know, why should you listen? If you know, I could find two rabbis throughout the centuries who said opposite things, which one do you follow and why? Right? right, and those are part of the thoughtful questions which I wish more people would ask. In terms right. of, well, okay, you cited the source. Why should I care about this source in particular, or why should I care about this authority in this case? But mm-hmm. I should ignore this authority in all those other places. And, and there is, I mean, you know, in terms of Judaism being such a, a long and, and centuries religion, there's a lot of information out there that you could use to to interpret and, and misinterpret. I guess that's the oh, thing. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Now, Rabbi, how can people learn more about your writings, learn more about you? How can people uh, how, how can people stay in touch? Uh, easiest way, if you want to be in touch, you can hit me up on Twitter. My handle is at JUter or uh, see my website at joshuter.com. Uh, there's a contact page if anyone wants to reach out by email. Uh, you can also see an archive of a bunch of things I've written. Also, some podcasts that I have up there. I have a series going through systematically uh, the halachic process. Right now, I'm doing a weekly pod- uh, podcast on Midrash, which are uh, rabbinic homiletic teachings and going through something on uh, the weekly Torah reading. So free to subscribe to that and all the major providers. Um, and yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone if anyone has any uh, questions or wants to talk about anything. Well, you have really been a delight to have on the podcast and oh. we do thank you so much and are grateful for you joining us from halfway around the globe. Thank you so much for having me. We want to wish the rabbi and all of our Jewish friends a happy and holy Passover. Hag Samiak. I think I got that right, Rabbi. Perfect. Uh, okay. And uh, we want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, technical producer, Brad Maybe, the Wizard of Pods. We will be back next week with another edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. Until then, always remember, read beyond the headlines. Have a good week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com. Oh, 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 oh